So uh, in our uh, evening sessions, uh, I've been talking about this uh, thing called slow and steady faithfulness, and we'll return to that tonight. In the morning, we've just been hitting some of the uh, topics that are some of my life messages uh, over the years. And our uh, topic uh, today, uh, there's a book that I wrote some years back called uh, Satisfied, Discovering Contentment in a World of Consumption. Uh, I've got three copies to give away. However... These three copies need to go to very unique individuals. If you are in the process of making an adjustment, going from two incomes to one, changing jobs where it's better for your family, but you're going to have to take kind of a downtick in in spending or budget seriously for the first time, Uh, or if you just look at your stuff and you go, why do we buy stuff we don't need and don't use? And you kind of go, man, we gotta talk about this. Then one of these copies is for you. Wait till everybody else leaves so that nobody knows. It's you that desires to make an adjustment. So uh, let's begin by taking a look at a, a picture of a, this attractive couple, uh, right? Oh yes, that's Chris and I. Circa, you see the corduroy jacket with the patches, circa 1983. Uh, that was our engagement picture. Uh, I would have been uh, 20 years old, uh, just wrapping up my third year of Bible college, and we'd be married about a month after that, and then a couple months after that, I would begin speaking at this little church called Ada Bible Church. Now, I have a word of financial advice for you. Some of you are going to want to write this down. If you are looking for a fast track to financial freedom, do not become the pastor of a church of 20 people. If you're looking for a fast track to financial stability, do not become the full-time pastor of a very small church that refuses to get off the ground. If you are looking for a fast track to financial stability, do not become the full-time pastor of a very small church that that refuses to get off the ground and then begin to have child number one, child number two, and child number three. Uh, In the early years of marriage and ministry, it seemed that we always had just barely enough to get by. Those days where you would go to the gas pump and you would put exactly $13 of gas into your tank because you had only $13 to put into your tank. Does anyone remember these days? We had cars with the sketchiest of reliability. Some of my most spiritual moments, I had devotions in these cars, morning after morning as they tried to start. Oh, dear Lord. If you are out there, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Did any of you drive this vehicle? Also, Chris learned how to take the three kids to McDonald's on eight bucks. She would get like the two cheeseburger meal, supersize the fries, which is enough to feed a small village. And then like another hamburger, she'd cut a couple, you know, get maybe a large orange pop and then, you know, split it in little Dixie cups among the kids. And if our daughter Sarah would say, mom, can I have a happy meal? Chris would say, are you happy? Yes, then that's a happy meal. (laughs) No savings, no emergency fund. And uh, when like an appliance would go out, this, this would be a major deal when an appliance would go out. Uh, now, we look back nostalgically on those days and laugh at the time. Wasn't that fun? Now, there's another way of looking at that thing when I said we just barely had barely enough. The flip side of that is God always seemed to provide what we needed when we needed it. 
That was the flip side of not barely enough. That was then. That's not our reality now. That couple's a little older now, and uh, we are poster children for Dave Ramsey. Uh, I mean, uh, year after year, spending less than we make. Uh, We've been in the habit of paying off our total credit card balance every single month. And we've done that for a a couple uh, decades at least. Uh, we, we, We have an emergency fund now. We live in a spacious house in a neighborhood of spacious homes. Our cars and my Subaru of the challenges I have in the morning, it always seems to start reliability. And when I go to the gas tank, it's like I always fill it to full. And the gas prices, I go, oh, that's interesting. You know, 505, it, it, it doesn't send a shockwave through our financial lives. But we contribute to a retirement fund, and in addition to that, we have some investments. And so I just want to say something about that couple. They're in danger. Their hearts are in danger. Because wealth is not a friend to faith. Prosperity doesn't treat most Christians well. And as your financial situation begins to stabilize and as you begin to prosper, my friends, there is a gravitational pull away from God. And we have to figure out what we do to halt that gravitational pull and to pursue God with a full heart as wealth grows as prosperity increases. There's a verse I want to look at uh, together. Um, Command those who are rich, and this is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. (laughs) Think the housing collapse of 2008. (laughs) But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for, last two words, Does it surprise you that that's in your Bible? Those last two words. Someone's being told, command those who are rich in this present world, the wealthy in your congregation, those who are prospered financially, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is just so uncertain, but to still put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That verse right there puts in capsule form my greatest challenge as an upper middle class American in this century in America. Enjoy this, just don't put your hope in it. Enjoy this, just don't put your hope in it. Now that enjoy this part, I just think there are times when you need to hear the voice of your heavenly father whisper to you, enjoy this. Two words all together and already. Enjoy this. As you sit on an Adirondack chair down at the beach and you watch your kid in a life vest swim out to a trampoline out in the water, and there's just this moment of satisfaction, two words, what are they? Enjoy this. When you sit down to dinner and it's breakfast for dinner and you go through a buffet line and you, ha- you can make a breakfast burrito for yourself and there are the eggs and there are the hash browns and there is uh, the, the bacon and there is the sausage and there are sauces, a number of sauces to choose from and there is a salad bar before that with a number of items, two words, what are they? 
enjoy this. If you have a patio or a deck and you're sitting out there early in some morning with a cup of coffee or a mug of tea, our Heavenly Father would whisper, enjoy this. Enjoy this. Just don't put your hope in it. Now, that first expression there, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. There's something about growing wealth where you go, I did this. Because we did. Sort of. But we did have help. I mean, you go to school, maybe you, maybe you, you, you get a degree, you work hard to get certified in whatever field you're in, you set an alarm clock, you go to work on time, you try to set up a budget, you carve some money aside for savings. There is a real ability to go, man, I did this. But <laughs> I did this turns into, I did this without you. <laughs> and I think it is just that command those not to be arrogant. I think, you know, I think what was being whispered here is a little humility wouldn't hurt. The humility, at least to say, I probably came upon certain advantages. Being born into the Midwest in America may have been a better advantage than being born into a lower class slum in India, for example. And you, I didn't choose that. You don't get to choose where you're born. So uh, I love this quote by uh, uh, Wilbur uh, Wright. This is, you know, Kitty Hawk, the Carolinas. What is it, like 1903, I believe? And uh, the first time uh, a heavy vehicle flew into the, into the air. And so here's a picture of uh, Wilbur, Orville and Wilbur, this next image here. And uh, I love this quote. This is uh, found in uh, David McCullough's book on the Wright brothers. And here's the quote. Wilbur Wright said, if I were giving a young man advice as to how he might succeed, I would say to him, pick out a good father and mother and begin life in Ohio. <laughs> pick out, a, by the way, when, this is the advice I want to give you. Pick out a good mom and dad and be raised in Ohio. And some of you from Ohio are going, yes, we already knew that. <laughs> All right. What he's saying there is, there are certain things they can't take credit for. See, their mom and dad let them tinker. They let them rip stuff apart and try to put it back together. They were nurtured in a tinkering environment. And though Wright Brothers Bicycle Shop, bikes were new and bike design was new. They're tinkering, tinkering, tinkering before they ever took a shot at this aircraft thing. And so I just love the humility there of Wilbur Wright to say, listen, there are some things we just can't take credit for. Who our mom and dad were and where we were raised. Pick out a good mom and dad and be raised in Ohio. A little humility wouldn't hurt. What he's saying here is, listen, we had some advantages when we entered this. So I think we have the verse again. I just want to look at the verse again. If we can go back to that, uh, Emma. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for what? Our enjoyment. Enjoy this. Enjoy this. Enjoy this. Just don't put your hope in it. I'm telling you, that right there outlines for me the financial challenge, thinking rightly about my stuff thinking sanely about my stuff, thinking humbly about my stuff. That verse right there probably puts in capsule form the financial challenge that I will have to the end of my life, how to enjoy it without putting my identity in it and my hope in it. So uh, a couple words about the, the book Satisfied, if we've got the, the cover here. Uh, when, when I wrote the book Satisfied, 
the deal is that I had been shaped and formed by uh, Christian financial books like Dave Ramsey, you know, Ron Blue, uh, Larry Burkett, uh, Howard Dayton, books like that. But all of those dudes came from the financial advisor side and basically gave good budgeting advice and if I may, sprinkled great Bible verses on top of the material. What I wanted to do, rather than approaching it from the financial side, on the budgeting side, I wanted to provide it from a depth of Bible study side. And say, okay, those verses that get sprinkled on those, who, where are those people? What is the context? Who is writing? And why did they need to hear that? And so I just kind of wanted to go deeper and to do something different than had been done with the pretty good Christian financial books that were out there. And so uh, uh, let's go to Ephesus together. Uh, there's a map here uh, which shows the location of Ephesus. Uh, we showed this, we showed this uh, it was last night, I think. Uh, Jerusalem over here, uh, Ephesus, the fourth largest city in the Roman world. What was larger? Rome was larger. Alexandria, Egypt was larger. And a city called Antioch, straight north of Jerusalem, about 300 miles, was larger than Ephesus. But Ephesus was one of the major financial trading zones of the day. Like I said last night, like a, a Hong Kong or a New York City as far as being a uh, trade mogul, dominated trade on the eastern edge of the Aegean. And what happened is the, the roads, the inland roads would come across to Ephesus with caravans to drop off stuff from the east. And uh, boats would come like from Egypt in the west and offload their goods, which were then taken to the east. And so it was one of these east meets west places. So uh, let me show you, uh, I had the privilege of being in Ephesus probably half a dozen times uh, or more, and so I uh, took some video there. And so I wanna show you the shopping center. It's called the Agora, and Agora was just your major marketplace. And so if we can play this video, and I'll just tell you what we're seeing as we move along. This is the entrance to the shopping center triple archway on one side. Uh, it is 100 yards by 100 yards, which is like two football fields side by side. Those columns supported a roof system so that as you walked the perimeter, you would be covered from the winter rains or the heat of the summer sun, and it's surrounded by shops, over 100 shops around the edges. And then, of course, you had shops in the middle in kiosks, and you could buy anything in the world there. I think you could find spices from the Far East that came on the caravan routes. You could get the latest fashions from Rome. You could buy Egyptian jewelry. You could find purple cloth from Thyatira. If it could be purchased, you could find it in the marketplace in Ephesus, in the Agora. That's the main shopping center. Again, two football, the Mall of America. Welcome to the Mall of Ephesus. The greatest shopping centers of the Roman world. Now, just up the hill, from the Agora, the marketplace, is something called the terrace houses because they're kind of built into this hillside and so they go up. Uh, welcome to the lifestyles of the rich and famous. These are some pictures of the excavated terrace houses. Uh, it begins with an exterior view from up the street, a covered roof system over it to keep the artifacts. Uh, all the floors are either marble or mosaic hot and cold running water. The walls are brick, oh, mosaics, tens of thousands of tiny chips creating these designs. 
your walls are plastered and then painted? And it's centrally located. It's half a block from the marketplace. It's down the street from the theater. If you were living in New York City, this would be, if you're living in Chicago, this would be like living uh, on the Gold Coast or on the Magnificent Mile. If you're living in New York City, this would be like uh, living right across from, from Central Park. It's not only what the house looked like, it was where they were. Now, here's the problem. Here's the question. If someone who had the financial capacity to live in the terrace houses became part of the Jesus movement. Do you think there was any kind of specialized discipleship that they might need? Not all Jesus followers were slaves. If someone with some significant, upwardly mobile financial capacity gave their life to Christ, asked Jesus in, any kind of specialized training that person might be, might need. Okay. The verse that we read is from 1 Timothy. There's an author, there is a recipient, and there's a location. Because it's the letter to, of 1 Timothy, some of you might guess that it was written to a guy by the name of... Some of you are scared to answer that. <laughs> Timothy, yes. It's written to Timothy, but it's written to Timothy by Paul. It's the older pastor advising the younger pastor. Paul spends three years of his life getting a Jesus community going in Ephesus. Paul takes off. Timothy comes in, his uh, understudy, and, and takes over spiritual responsibility in Ephesus. So here is the founding pastor writing to the next pastor, advising him on how to guide believers in this congregation. But Timothy is in Ephesus. Check out 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, and Paul says something like, the reason I left you in Ephesus, so we know the location. Now, what I'm saying here is this, uh, that Timothy would have walked through that marketplace and he would have walked by those terrace houses. And he was responsible for leading people, not just from the lower classes, he was responsible for leading people from the upper classes. And Paul is giving Timothy guidance on how to give specialized training for those who are prospering financially. So uh, let's look at the verse one more time. So Timothy, in Ephesus, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But instead, Timothy, command those affluent believers in Ephesus to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our, for our what? For our enjoyment. How to enjoy it without putting your hope in it. I guess in showing the picture of the marketplace that shopping center and showing the picture of the terrace houses. What I'm trying to instill on us is this, that sometimes you go back to the Bible and you go, so it is so different today than it was then. I walk through the marketplace in Ephesus and I go, oh my goodness, nothing's changed. For a believer who can walk through the marketplace in Ephesus and go, yeah, I'll take one of those. Yeah, I'll take two of those. Yeah, uh, pick up some bread there, some grapes there. What spices are those? I'll have some of those. That person needs some specialized training. So here's the question of the day. What do you do? And I mean you. What do you do? As your financial situation stabilizes, if you get rid of debt, if savings is growing, if you live in a decent home and own an automobile, what in the world do you do to rescue your heart from the darker edges of consumptive materialism? What do you do functionally if you ask the question, Jeff, is there anything I can actually do 
to prevent my heart from drifting from God as our wealth grows. Paul outlines four things, but these four things are actually two things. He gives Timothy these directions, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. That's Timothy's direction from Paul on how to disciple, how to train and how to coach the wealthier aspects of his congregation. Can you read this out loud with me, ready? Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. That is the actual what to do passage to rescue the soul from egocentric, it's all about me thinking as wealth grows. Now, there's four things there, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share, but they really break down kind of two and two. The first two, to do good and to be rich in good deeds, uh, are kind of like a generosity of time. It's the discipline of serving to do good and be rich in good deeds. The, the second two, to be generous and willing to share, feel more to me like the discipline of sharing. So like the first two are, are like serving and the second two are like sharing. The discipline of serving and the discipline of sharing. So if you two-point outline for where we're headed today, the discipline of serving and the discipline of sharing. To do good and to be good deed rich. Timothy, you gotta coach these people to not only be financially well-off, but to be good, deed, rich. Question, what's that doing there? Encourage them to a life of humble servanthood. What's that doing here? Isn't this a financial conversation? I mean, if a guy in my congregation approached me on a Sunday morning after a service and said, hey, uh, could I get a minute? He said, last week we were approached by an investment banker who desires to buy our little family company. And they wanna keep me for the next four years to still be president of the thing uh, for four years. And the salary is gonna be equal to my salary now, but we are about to get an infusion of cash as a family that we never imagined. When my brother and I, when we started this company 17 years ago, we never imagined that we would be able to cash out someday for this amount. And he says, I'm scared because money is beginning to captivate my dreams, captivate my hopes, and captivate my life. Pastor, is there anything I can do? And I go, yeah, are you and your wife serving in the nursery regularly on the rotation? No, no I don't know if you heard me. This is a financial question. I said, yeah, I know. Okay, here's the deal. Uh, Wednesday night, we have our middle schoolers come through and trash the building in middle school. And Thursday morning, we have our women's Bible studies come through. Would you and your wife ever consider being on the rotation for coming and volunteering to clean on Wednesday night? He goes, you don't get it. I'm asking a financial question. What's this doing here? To do good and be rich in good deeds. This is what I believe Paul is coaching Timothy to coach the more affluent aspects of his congregation. Here's the deal. As your wealth grows, there's an increased propensity to go, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. And there is something about humble servanthood that just goes, it's not all about me, it's not all about me, it's not all about me. Let me put it this way. Humble servanthood is anti-arrogance training. Showing up, and regularly, humbly serving. It trains the channels of the heart toward humility. Regular, consistent, faithful serving is anti-arrogance training. 
Because as wealth grows, the heart drifts from God, and we gotta figure out what to do so it doesn't drift, so it drifts toward God. And by the way, Jesus, our Lord, was like this. At the, the Last Supper, he uh, takes off his uh, robe, he washes the disciples' feet, and then he tells them, you have just seen me do this, now you do this. Jesus desired to raise up a community of foot washers. And washing people's feet in the first century, I mean, like the lowest slave got that job. And so uh, this is the servant foot washing Christ, the foot washing king who desired to raise up a community of foot washers, humble servanthood. There's a point where his disciples are arguing about infrastructure, I think, who's president, who's vice president, who's secretary treasurer. It says they were arguing about who was the greatest. And I think they were arguing infrastructure. And Jesus says, listen, and as you find this in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus said, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give up his life. As the DNA of Jesus takes hold in you, you will find new and creative ways to serve and to give up your life. Before we move from this, the discipline of serving, uh, is uh, a couple things I think might be, uh, might, might, might be helpful. Um, number one is there's a, to do good, you actually have to do something. It's not thinking about doing good. It's not raising awareness about doing good. It's not planning to do good. And it's not funding somebody else to do good. To do good, you actually have to do something not just think about doing something. So uh, I think you found yourself at a funeral home in a very similar situation uh, as, as I have, where you're, you're, you're in line and you need to just go let someone know that you just wanna support them and you're there to pay your respects. And if it's a tragic loss, often you walk up and I need you to finish this for me. You say, if you guys need anything, do what? Call me, and we mean it. And in that moment where we say, if you need anything, call me, we've just given them a blank check, but it's a blank check that's unsigned and undated. We've just promised everything, if you need anything, but we actually haven't done anything. And now I've put twin burdens on them. Number one, they have to, they, gotta, they have to ask. They have to ask. And number two, they have to be creative enough to know what they need. And my experience is that people who are in deep grief or deep depression sometimes lack the awareness to even know what they need. So here's my mantra. Doing anything is better than promising everything. Calling and saying, I'm gonna be by with pizza tonight for your family, what would you like on it? Oh no, oh no, oh no. <laughs> and you go, no, no, it's nothing. I'm gonna swing by, pick up a couple pizzas and drop it off. Now on a scale of one to 10, Picking up a couple pizzas, you drop 30 bucks into it, you drop it off at somebody's house. On a scale of one to 10, how hard is that? That's a, a one, a two, maybe? But imagine being on the other end of that, calling someone and saying, hey, by the way, on your way home tonight, would you please bring two pizzas to us? On uh, one of them, we want mushrooms and pepperoni. On the other one, we would like just plain cheese for the kids. What does that feel like in asking for that? It feels like, like an eight or a nine. <laughs> And so sometimes people won't ask. Doing anything is better than promising. At least offer something. They can decline. 
but at least offer something tangible. Uh, my buddy, Chris and I, we had dear friends, uh, Phil and Sherry. Sherry uh, died of a lingering uh, disease uh, a couple years back. My other buddy, Dave, and we would bike together right after her funeral, called Phil and said, hey, I've got, I'm gonna have the fire pit going tonight, I'm gonna order some pizzas. Dave came, excuse me, Phil came, who just lost his wife, his sons, his brother. It was just this evening to sit around a campfire with some dudes and a couple adult beverages and process what had just happened and how he's doing. And the reason Dave did that that night was because offering a campfire was better than offering anything that, but the check that's unsigned and undated. Is this making sense? Doing anything is better than offering uh, everything. So. Uh, we, a couple in our church, uh, friends Chris and I, for years, uh, Kevin and Meg, Kevin's a fi financial advisor, uh, they do not struggle financially, and uh, I would walk into our children's wing and Kevin would be a small group leader for a group of young grade school boys, and often through the atrium and the corridor, the checkout area, often Meg was checking kids in. You say, oh, that must be so helpful for your church. That's helpful for our church, that's helpful for them. When you've got travel options all over the place, showing up at a certain hour, sitting down in a circle with second graders, or checking in families of preschoolers, it rescues the heart. So the question I have to ask before we move to the second part is, is there anywhere that you are consistently faithfully serving? Let me change that. There needs to be somewhere where it's not random acts of kindness where you are just consistently, faithfully serving other people, whether it's hosting a small group in your home, whether it's sitting on a board, whether it's serving in your children's ministry, youth ministry, whether it's being a marriage mentor couple in your church where you've been through some battles and some wars in your marriage and kind of made it out the other side and you're healthier and you're willing to meet with a younger couple that's really, really struggling. Just find something that is not convenient. Something that is regular, something that is consistent. Humble, consistent servanthood is anti-arrogance training. It trains us to think about our stuff more sanely because it trains the heart to go, it's not all about me, it's not all about me, it's not all about me. Yeah, I have stuff, I enjoy it, I just won't put my hope in it. The discipline of serving. The second one is the, the discipline of saving, and it's these next two, to be generous and willing to share. To be generous and willing to share. And this feels, this feels more, uh, the first two seem to be more generosity of time. The second two seem to be more generosity of uh, finances. Um, beware beware of spontaneous generosity. And by that I mean many of us have moments of generosity where we see a need, step in, and meet the need. Consistent, faithful, disciplined generosity will crush spontaneous generosity. 
Uh, spontaneous generosity, I, I mean this. Uh, someone says, yeah, we just love to give. We just love being generous. Why, well, just, uh, just last year, you know, we bought a washer and dryer for that couple after they had their new baby. And then the dude's wife goes, uh, hon, he's in kindergarten now. That wasn't last year. You're kidding me. Kindergarten, that was five years ago? But we, <laughs> we can think ourselves generous because we had a generous moment five years ago. Consistent, faithful, disciplined generosity will crush that. I ran into a guy who says, yeah, you know, I just love generosity. Sometimes I'll be at the airport and I'll be in a fast food line and there will be a, 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 someone there in military, you know, in uniform. And I'll say, hey, I'll cover his meal too. And I go, dude, that is so awesome. You do that. Yeah. Do you fly a lot? Do you get fast food a lot while flying? Is your airport a military hub as people are being deployed? Are you thinking of yourself generous because of something you did in 2017? <laughs> now, I love spontaneous generosity, but it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg built on this pyramid of consistent, faithful, disciplined generosity. Disciplined generosity will crush these generous, spontaneous moments. So uh, I was raised in a church planter's family, southeast Idaho. So my dad would go into these heavy populated Mormon communities. And, I mean, there might be half a dozen Mormon churches and a little Catholic church. And my dad would try to start an independent, my mom and dad would start an independent Bible church. And there's a story from the early days, Lava Hot Springs, Idaho, where my dad said this guy would come in. Now think, think early 60s here, because this doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but it did back in the day. This guy would walk in, he's kind of a heavy hitter in town, and my dad knew whenever he saw that guy sitting in the congregation, which about once a year, the guy would drop a $100 bill, he'd drop a Benjamin into the offering plate. He's like, big day, once a year, visit a $100 bill in the offering plate, and that was a big deal. And suddenly, my dad realized one day that there were two kids who would sit in the front row as Sunday school was beginning, and as they passed the offering basket, their mom would give each of them a dollar bill to put in the offering plate, but they were there week after week after week after week. And one day, it occurred to my dad that their $52 uh, times two, $104, that they were outgiving that guy. <laughs> That is the power of slow and steady, consistent faithfulness. And so if the serving uh, question was, where are you consistently, faithfully serving? The discipline of sharing, if you don't have a giving system where it's some part of your income on a systematic basis, I just plead with you to start somewhere. Just pick a percentage point. Start somewhere and start now. Don't delay this. It'll go on the pile of good intentions. Later is lethal. Just start somewhere. Start now as a disciplined giver. There's something called radical generosity. Radical generosity is where you begin to organize your finances around giving money away rather than waiting to see what's left over and then deciding to give something out of that. Radical generosity. Um, this, too, is anchored in the heart of Christ. We need to remember that if we're pursuing generosity, we are never making the first move. It's always a response. First of all, it's a response to the God of creation who has surrounded us with natural beauty that is off the hook. Rain falls, apple trees grow, strawberry plants, grain from which we make bread, from which we feed our families, rain, crops, food, joy, 
when we pursue generosity, it's always a response to the God of creation. We are never making the first move. And then, and then there's the, like the Jesus thing, <laughs> the generosity of Jesus coming for us. And that is exactly the, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is trying to convince the Jesus community in Corinth to give money to a, fine, to a famine relief offering in Israel. It's money they're supposed to give, but it's not for them, for their church or a building project or anything. It's for famine relief in Jerusalem. And they had promised this gift, and then it just went on the back burner, and they hadn't delivered. And so Paul, the apostle, takes two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. He goes, I think he could have gotten to an offering in like, come on, get it together, and just applied pressure. And I think he stepped back and goes, I don't think they get it. I don't think they understand what generosity is. So he takes these two chapters to build this case on the generous life. And in it, the Apostle Paul reminds them of this. He says, for you know something, because these were all like in the church. These were Jesus people. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we, because of his poverty, might become rich. And I think he means spiritually rich there. He says, by, by the way, as you pursue generosity, you're never making the first move. It's in that same passage, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that the Apostle Paul says, some of you can know how this verse goes, and you can finish it for me. God loves a, God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Why? Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because he's a cheerful giver. <laughs> it's what he's like. And when we become cheerful givers, it's like his DNA is getting grafted into us. God loves a cheerful giver because he's a cheerful giver. Uh, theologian N.T. Wright said, the kingdom of God is nothing less than the total renovation of your imagination. How can I have a renovated imagination to dream better dreams? The kingdom of God is nothing, the coming of the kingdom of God in Jeff is nothing less than a total renovation of my dreams, my visions, my hopes, in my imagination. Paul writes to the pastor in Ephesus, major city, trade city, lots of wealth, growing incomes among some. And he says, Timothy, faith, uh, wealth is not always a friend to faith. And you're going to have to coach those who are on this upwardly mobile track because it's not going to happen automatically. Encourage them not to be arrogant because there are certain advantages that they didn't choose. Well, he's got a great mind for money. Yeah, but who gave him that mind? Who gave you that mind? Timothy, encourage him to serve and to share, to share and to serve. And then Paul ends the conversation by saying, in this way, let's look at the last verse here. He says, in this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life. That is what? Truly life. Uh, eternal life is not just something you get when you die. Eternal life is something that you step into now. And death doesn't stop it. It continues into the next life. It continues into living after dying. In this serve and share, I think our Father was whispering, listen, I've got life for you. I've got life for you. And just more, better, more, better, more, better, upgrade, more, better, larger. It's a death spiral. 
I mean, it will, it will definitely satisfy you, but it'd probably be fleeting and you get unsatisfied and someone else will get something and then you got to, you know. And so he says, no, there's a, there's a quality of life out there that you will experience through following the way of the creator and following the way of your Lord and serving and sharing, sharing and serving. You're never making the first move. All I've been trying to say this morning is this. That if I've given my life to Jesus, except for my time and my money, I don't think he has me. <laughs> if I've given myself to Christ, except for my time and my money, I don't think he has me. And again, someone says, yeah, I invited Christ into my life. It's not just that I invite him into my life. It's that he invites me into his <laughs> which is a life of sharing, which is a life of serving, which is a, a life of life. That's really life. So can I give thanks? Gracious God, today please help us to enjoy. <laughs> help us to look at a dozen things that surround us and taste and flavors, and scooters that go zipping by, and children laughing and playing, and just remind us, enjoy this, enjoy this, enjoy this. May we enjoy the gifts that come from your hand. And our hearts need to be renovated to think sanely about our stuff. We need you. Help us. Help us, please. Amen.